This podcast was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play our guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Can we just have a little less guitar in the John finally got just after that, and we were both of us do what we wanted to do, do what we wanted to do. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our great musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T. Romicast.com, and uh, at that website, you can find out more information about me, and you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. And also, if you see fit, you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial-free. Uh, I am a one-man band when it comes to this show. You are listening to the uh, chief producer, researcher, writer, interviewer, <laughs> editor. Uh, I do it all uh, for the show. And uh, you know what? I do it because it's a labor of love. I love talking about the Beatles, and this is a a side project that I've never had the time for. And uh, since my sports play-by-play career finished... I have time for it, and I really enjoy it. Make no mistake about it, and nobody asked me to do this. That said, it's a lot of work. I'm a one-man band, and any donation that you make goes towards the show, goes towards my time, and offsetting some of the technical costs that I have had in getting this whole thing up and running. So if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy what I'm doing, it's a great way to show your support. You just press the Donate button, at the bottom of the webpage. So I thank you for that if you can help out. Uh, also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, do leave a positive review or rating. That kind of thing does help. It, it helps, I think, to get you on some of those uh New and upcoming podcast lists, which I've never been on yet. So thanks for that, if you can. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle the underscore RomyCast. That's the underscore sign RomyCast. Look for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page on Facebook. A like would be greatly appreciated. My guest today is Jerry Legere, a fantastic Canadian singer-songwriter who was enamored with the early solo work of John Lennon, among other luminaries of that era, but also the whole belief from the era that rock and roll music can lead us all to some sort of common ground, which is a lovely, lovely sentiment that we can all look towards with some fondness, I think, considering the way things are in the world at present. You can definitely hear a Lennon influence in some of Jerry's work, that 
sort of dirty Lennon guitar sound from songs like Well, Well, Well or I Found Out is a sound that Jerry goes for in some of his harder edge songs. And and there's also a, a real honesty in Jerry's lyrics and his writing that I think reflects what John Lennon tried to do, uh, especially with some of his early solo stuff. Jerry's latest proper album is Time Out for Tomorrow, and it continues a rather impressive output that started back in 2005 when, at the age of 19, he released the first of nine studio albums, along with three more with his side projects, the Delphi's and the Bop Fies. It added up to a body of work that was recently celebrated with the European-only compilation Too Broke to Die, which is a a fun listen, gives you a real overview of some of the stuff he's done so far. One of Canada's great singer-songwriters of this era, the great Ron Sexsmith, who I hope to have on this show in the coming weeks, has worked with Jerry, and he says, Jerry Legere has that spark in him that all the great songwriters have. He's the real deal. And that's high praise coming from Ron Sexsmith. Many people didn't discover Legere until his 2014 album, Early Riser. Uh, That was his first with Michael Timmons of the Cowboy Junkies handling production duties, as well as the first to be released on the Junkies' own label, Latent Recordings. The combination of Timmons' sort of capture-the-moment production style something that the junkies do for sure, uh, and the great chemistry of Legere's longtime band, The Situation, plus a few special guests, is right on point. You can find out what Jerry is up to at his webpage, jerrylegere.com. He's on Twitter. The handle is at Jerry Legere. He's on Insta. The handle is Jerry Legere Music. And he's on Facebook. Jerry Legere Music is the handle on Facebook. So I would like to welcome Jerry to our microphones. And Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the Beatles with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I want to start by calling attention to uh, a book of poetry that you have out called Just the Nightbirds. Uh, And there's a lovely poem called Anything by the Fab Four. And to me, when I read it, it's a poem about a wistful uh, or maybe a a better word is is a happier recollection of days past with your family. So I'm looking at the third stanza of that poem, and I wonder if I could get you to read it for me. Yeah. Um, And the music was oh so beautiful, and my mother looked oh so strong. She sang to her loving family an old teeny bopper song. She had it on 45 when she was just a girl, and all her babysitting money would go to anything by the Fab Four. So... Does this tell me where the Beatles and their music entered your life? Yes, it's uh, both my parents are are big Beatles fans, especially my mom. Uh, My my mom is is also a huge John Lennon fan. So I grew up from, you know, the moment I was around. uh, I grew up listening to Solo Lennon and all the Beatles records. We would be on uh, going for drives up to the cottage in the summer. And that was always the soundtrack, you know, like we'd have Lennon or Beatles, also traveling Wolburys, Rodney Crowell, you know, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's really because of them that it was such a, a big part of my life early on. And, and actually the first song I was obsessed with was in my life before I even 
really knew who the Beatles were, but I was obsessed with that song. And my parents used to torment me by uh, when I would be like asking for them to put that song on, they would put a different Beatles song on <laughs> just to bother me. And, uh, you know, they'd be laughing like, this, this isn't the one. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely my, my uh, parents. And that poem has uh, uh, some truth to it of, of uh, my mom with her babysitting money growing up, she would buy Beatles records, bobbing head dolls, you know, all that stuff, right? What do you think it was? And I, I suppose this is a question that, uh, that you know, people will ask because of the, the so many hundreds of millions of people who've listened to their music. But what was it, do you think, about the Beatles music that captivated your young mind? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to say. Um, uh it's just something that uh, is very uh, comforting about their music. It's still comforting, you know, like when I'm in, you know, into a, a bad space or whatever, you have a, a bad day, uh, uh, you know, it, that music really, um, it kind of levels me. Uh, the same way, like the Everly Brothers, that's like another band that, that does that too. Um it just makes me feel comfortable again. And, and I think as a kid, that that's the initial feeling, you know, and, and, uh, and then of course, as time went on, there's all those other layers, especially with Lennon's stuff uh, as, as he progressed. Okay. Well, we're going to get to, uh, we're going to, why did you choose as your record, John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band? Why that one? Well, because there's some well, time about the different layers and stuff like that. There's so many layers to that album. And uh, early on when I heard it, um, even when I didn't quite understand a lot of it, I knew that there was this intensity and I knew that there was this honesty. And this guy is, you know, the John Lennon that I've known in the Beatles is, is uh, really like bearing his soul and working through issues and there's also there's the pain in it but there's also a lot of love in the record too yes and, yes uh, there is yep you're right and when i started writing my own songs and, and playing music that album was a, a huge influence and in, in, uh not just the content but the sound of the record the you know the uh the rawness and and uh and what you can do with using a lot of space uh and, and the record has continued to be influential for me in different ways on, on different albums. If it is uh, lyrically or vocally or musically, it's just there's so many aspects of it that um, have continued to be a huge influence on uh, my life and the way I choose to, to make music and present my music. So I just want to put a bit of context around the album to sort of frame it, because I think that always makes it a little bit easier to uh, have a bit of an appreciation for where it came from, what was going on in the person's life. So here's a bit of context. Uh, the Beatles famously, of course, had started to go their separate ways during the White Album sessions as far back as 1968, when at times they essentially served as a, a backing band for one another's individual tracks. They'd wrapped up recording and sequencing for the White Album in early October of 69. The record came out on November 22nd and was a huge global hit. 
The band reconvened on Thursday, January the 2nd, 1969 at Twickenham Film Studios in West London to begin rehearsals for what would eventually become the Let It Be album, generally known as the Get Back Sessions. That was initially the working title of the new album, Get Back. The plan was, famously, to film the band rehearsing and recording an album and then finishing with some type of performance of the new record. I won't go into all the details of the Get Back sessions. That'll be for an episode on that record. But suffice it to say that by the time they wrapped up that project, more or less with the studio performances at their own Apple recording studios on January 31st, they seemingly had about enough of one another yet they pretty much went right back to work and we're all back into the studio together by mid-april working on george harrison's old brown shoe and shortly into sessions for what would be abbey road that album came out september 26th 1969 then it was back to trying to figure out how to compile something usable out of the get back sessions the final beatles recording session as a band was on january 3rd 4th 1970 when paul george and ringo were at emi studios to put finishing touches on george harrison's for you blue which needed to be done because the song was included in the let it be film which the album was the soundtrack for at this point all the beatles were looking at other things to do outside of the boundaries of the group. Ringo Starr started to work on an album of old standards, Sentimental Journey, in October of 1969. Paul McCartney had started to work on his first solo record, the self-titled McCartney, at his home studio in December of 1969. George Harrison started work on All Things Must Pass in late May of 1970. John Lennon, meanwhile, had already been a very busy man with projects away from the Beatles. He'd done the Two Virgins album in November of 1968 with Yoko, where they famously appear naked on the cover. They also did Life with the Lions in May of 1969. And on July 4th, 1969, he releases the single Give Peace a Chance, recorded June 1st, 1969, at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, room 1742, if you're keeping track, uh, tearing one of John and Yoko's bed-ins for peace. The whole thing had taken place after the Let It Be sessions and before they'd gotten seriously down to recording Abbey Road. John didn't really join the sessions for that album in earnest until July the 21st. Cold Turkey demos were brought to the Beatles for consideration as the group's next single. This was rejected by the group. So Lennon gathers a band of Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorman, and Ringo, and they record the song over a couple of sessions on the 25th and 28th of September 1969. The session on the 25th, the day before Abbey Road is to be released, the song is released as a single in October of 1969. The Wedding Album comes out in November of 69. And then Live Peace in Toronto comes out in December of 1969. It was the first live album of music released by any member of the Beatles together or separately. This was a recording that had been made on September the 13th of that year at a Toronto rock festival at Varsity Stadium. Lennon was originally contacted by organizers to emcee the festival, and he then offered to perform with his own band. And he then hastily assembled a band of Eric Clapton, after George Harrison had said no thanks, 
Klaus Vorman on bass and Alan White on drums. This took place just after the band had finished working on Abbey Road. So as I said, there's stuff going on outside of the borders of the group. Here is where things get interesting. Now, the mythology, up until very recently, was that the Beatles knew it was over when they went in to record Abbey Road. However, a tape recording of a meeting between Lennon, Harrison, and McCartney on September the 8th, 1969, a tape shared by Beatles historian Mark Lewison in September of 2019, puts new interesting brushstrokes on this mural. Again, the date is September 8th, 1969. Ringo was in the hospital undergoing tests for an intestinal complaint. In his absence, John, Paul, and George convene at Apple's HQ in Savile Row. John has brought a portable tape recorder. He puts it on the table, switches it on, and says, Ringo, you can't be here, but this is so you can hear what we're discussing. So I'm going to quote now from an article that appeared in the September 11th, 2019 edition of The Guardian newspaper. Here's the quote. What they talk about is the plan to make another album and perhaps a single for release in time for Christmas, a commercial strategy going back to the earliest days of Beatlemania. It's a revelation, Mark Lewison says. The books have always told us that they knew Abbey Road was their last album and they wanted to go out on an artistic high. But no, they're discussing the next album. And you think that John is the one who wanted to break them up, but when you hear this, he isn't. Doesn't that rewrite pretty much everything we thought we knew? Lewison turns the tape back on. And we hear John suggesting that each of them should bring in songs as candidates for the single. He also proposes a new formula for assembling their next album. Four songs apiece from Paul, George, and himself, and two from Ringo, if he wants them. John refers to the Lennon-McCartney myth, clearly indicating that the authorship of their songs, hitherto presented to the public as a sacrosanct partnership, should at last be individually credited. End quote from The Guardian. So that's on September 8th, 1969, when that takes place. Five days later, September the 13th, 1969, Lennon is playing a concert with the Plastic Ono Band in Toronto. Then, in February of 1970, Lennon releases another single under the Plastic Ono Band umbrella, Instant Karma, and that is a Beatles-caliber song that he didn't take to the group, but released under the guise of the Plastic Ono Band. On March 27th, Ringo's Sentimental Journey comes out. So in the midst of all of this, at the start of April 1970, enter Dr. Arthur Yanov. The American psychotherapist had sent Lennon an unsolicited copy of his book, The Primal Scream, subtitled Primal Scream Therapy, The Cure for Neuroses, based on the premise that people's neuroses were caused by repressed pain connected to childhood experiences. Lennon was fascinated by the book and is said to have read it in a single setting. Ono summoned Janov to Tittenhurst Park, which is where the Lennons lived, from Los Angeles. 
In an attempt to help Lennon confront his unresolved formative traumas, losing contact with his mother Julia after being sent to live with his aunt Mimi, and Julia's death in 1958 when Lennon was 17 years old, and the sporadic, infrequent contact with his father during his childhood. Janov conducted a number of primal therapy sessions at Lennon's half-built recording studio at Tittenhurst Park, but the chaotic state of the house prevented them from making much progress. The sessions moved to London. On April 10th, advanced copies of McCartney's self-titled debut were sent out, significantly containing the infamous self-interview, in which McCartney indicates that he doesn't see any Beatles activity taking place anytime soon, if ever. Now, McCartney had phoned Lennon at the clinic in London on April 9th to inform him of the album's release, but according to Lennon, he shies away from directly telling John that he is leaving the Beatles. Lennon sees the newspaper headlines that proclaim, Paul is quitting the Beatles, and apparently doesn't react well. On April 30th, Lennon and Yoko leave the UK for Janov's clinic in Los Angeles, where they stay for four months undergoing primal scream therapy. Let It Be finally comes out on May the 8th. George Harrison is the last of the Beatles to start work on a proper solo album, and he starts work on recording All Things Must Pass on May 26th. John and Yoko come back from Los Angeles to England on September 24th, 1970. Lennon was 28 pounds heavier than he had been before leaving in April. (laughs) He put it down to eating too much ice cream. A couple of days after they return, they enter EMI Studios at Abbey Road, London, keen to begin work on some of the songs that they composed in Los Angeles. They record two albums simultaneously, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band and Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band, although her record was mostly recorded during one single afternoon session. The core band is Klaus Vorman on bass, Ringo on drums, and John on guitar. Ringo said years later, the simplicity of what Klaus and I played with him gave him a great opportunity to actually, for the first time, really use his voice and emotion how he could. There was no battle going on. He would just sit there and sing. Then we would sort of jam, and then we'd find out how they would sort of go, and we did them. It was very loose, actually, and being a trio also was a lot of fun. That's Ringo Starr who said that during a documentary made a few years later on the making of the album that we're going to talk about. So, Jerry, lots of stuff going down. You're maybe staying together, but still doing solo stuff. You're fighting with a guy who was your best friend. You've met the new love of your life. You're taking primal scream therapy, trying to come to grips with past demons. You're using heroin. Is that a well you're wanting to be dipping into to create something? I mean, does creativity come more easily to you in chaos or order? For me personally, um, I mean, it, it can change the way that you're writing for sure, you know, because you're in a, a certain state of mind, especially something like that. If you have a lot of stress and turmoil and changes happening around and 
in your head. I mean, of course, that's going to find its way into the crevices when you're uh, writing songs, you know, like uh, with Lennon, especially during that time, uh, the honesty of his writing, uh, it's very brave and and gutsy. And, and, you know, I'd be lying if I said I've, I've made a record that was as confessional or, um, you know, bearing my soul like Lennon did. I mean, I think that's what makes that record um, the, the album that it is, you know? And, and uh, but yeah, for me personally, there's been, yeah, different times in, in my life. Sure, there's been reflections, but, you know, I'm, I'm also still like a storyteller. So, uh, you know, I pick up little things in the air or, or, you know, make believe, and then it's all kind of mixed together. So does it, um, Jerry, does it surprise you hearing like all of that stuff that was going on that I just went through? Does it surprise you that he was able to have, have his shit together enough to come in and, and, and focus and make a record like this? Um, well, I think, you know, like, uh, it's been said a lot with music being a, a form of therapy, I think with writers, uh, uh, it, it does help quite a lot. Even if you're, the turmoil is really related to music or your career, if your career is in music, it ends up being like a, a bit of uh, fuel or it ends up being, you know, uh, uh, some medicine, even when there's outside medicine that you're using to uh, help with the pain. So let's start the, with the album and... Track one, cut one. I'm going to go old school and, and take the vinyl out of the sleeve and, and put it on the turntable here. Uh, nice. So track one, cut one is Mother. What does that song say to you? Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, it tells you pretty much exactly what happened, you know, where, you know, Lennon, the way that he grew up with without uh, having his, his mother there, uh, uh, you know, uh, raising him and same thing with his father. His father ran off um, and his mother at the time felt incapable of, of uh, raising him. And so his uh, his aunt and uncle uh, raised him from a young age. you had me But I never had you that's that's left where it's just Lennon you know on the whole notes just like these bar bar notes on on uh, the piano and just letting it ring out while Ringo and Klaus just lay that beat just keep it going and and it, it makes it more powerful you know uh, uh, you really you get what he's feeling and the words hit you a lot harder when when there's space you know it's like I've I play with a lot of musicians over the years and listen to a lot of music. And, and I think something about space and letting uh, a track breathe more is, uh, is one thing that's, uh, 
there's a lot of musicians that don't really think about that. You know, they want to fill in all the spaces and, and stuff like that. And, and mother is a great example of, of how those spaces and having uh, uh, the time for it to breathe can make the song way more effective. It's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, I'm not a musician. I listen to a lot of music, but uh, there's a, a brilliant jazz pianist uh, a guy named Bill Evans and uh, oh, yeah. and I've heard said about Bill Evans the thing that makes his playing so special is uh, he plays in between the notes and you might understand right. that more than I would but just to your point he he just finds those little areas to let it breathe uh, and yeah. then and then hits the notes now you talked about uh, Ringo and Klaus here's a quote from Ringo he says the simplicity of what Klaus and I played with him gave him a great opportunity to actually for the first time really use his voice and emotion how we could there was no battle going on he would just sit there and sing them and we would just sort of jam and then we'd find out how they would sort of go and we did them it was very loose actually and being a trio also was a lot of fun uh what do you think about Lennon's voice in the song Mother? I mean, it, it, it can send shivers up your spine, the screaming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so wild. I mean, you know, he, uh, the way he goes at the end and, and uh, you feel that anguish, you know, um, it's such a personal, honest song, you know, like I, I, I know that there's other examples if I really think about it, but you know, Mother, that whole the whole Plastic Ono band album, I've I've never heard somebody so honest and 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 naked. You know, it's like they he was actually naked on the cover of Two Virgins, but he's musically and emotionally naked on on this album, and and you just feel that pain. You know, like I I don't know what that feels like because you know like uh, I grew up with with a, a great loving family both my parents who are still together and stuff but you can feel you know that uh the pain that Lennon was going through you know uh having an absent father and having dealing with that emotion of of uh the feeling that your mother didn't want you you know in the beginning and of course they established uh almost like a friendship by the time Lennon was a, a young teenager and then she was sadly killed. But, uh, but yeah, you can feel the, the, the pain in this and, and the way that he screams at the end, like I, I mean, there was screaming in rock and roll, you know, for, for years. I mean, little Richard, you know, right off the, the get go, but, uh, but not like this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those I freak some people out, probably especially Beatles fans. There's a lot to be, freaked out about on this album you know i can i understand why it wasn't as uh popular as the other uh you know mccartney's record and harrison's and stuff well lennon said uh, in an interview in 1970 he said many many people will not like mother it hurts them the first thing that happens to you when you get the album is you can't take it everybody reacted exactly the same they think fuck that's how everybody is and the second time, they start saying, oh, well, there's a little... So I can't lay mother on them. It confirms the suspicions that something nasty's going on with that John Lennon and his broad again. That's John Lennon <laughs> speaking in, uh, in 1970. He started the song on electric guitar. 
and then he switched to the piano and just played, you referred to them, Jerry, just very simple, sustained chords and slowed the tempo of the song. And then the screams uh, at the end of the songs, the, you know, Mama Don't Go, Daddy Come Home, were, they were... They were double-tracked, but they were overdubbed after the rest of the vocals. He recorded a new attempt every night after the rest of the day's work was complete to avoid harming his voice, but he wanted to get that rawness. So from the starkness of this song, we go on to cut to Hold On, much lighter track. Yeah, that's a, it's a great song, you know, and, and I love uh, on the original uh, uh, record... That the that that's clipped at the very beginning. You know, it kind of just it, it just happens, and and I know when when they would do the song, he would get the engineer to mix it very quickly, and he and he grab it. And uh, so I'm wondering if that was the case here, where they they just did a rough mix, and Lennon ended up, you know, releasing it. So I think that's cool. You know, obviously Lennon. Uh, he dug the sound of that, and and uh, and also you really get to to hear because uh, it's the first song with him playing guitar on the record. You really get to hear uh, uh, his unique playing, you know, like rhythm and little like uh, not lead, but but you know little things that that he does beyond the the rhythm. And you know, with the Beatles, you'd have Harrison. Uh, playing a lot, maybe overdubbing all kinds of stuff, and this you really hear like the purity of of uh, of his type of playing and his his singing, of course, too. Uh, I love "Hold On." It's such a great. Uh, it's one of the yeah more positive songs on the album, really. Your musician's ear uh, comes to the fore, Jerry, because uh, here's a quote from John Lennon: "Isolation and hold on." Uh, they're rough remixes. I just remixed oh, them that okay. night. Yeah, <laughs> remixed them that night on seven and a half inch uh, to take them home to see what else I was going to do with them. And then I didn't really, uh, I didn't even put them into 15 inches per second, 15 inches per second tape. So the quality is a bit hissy on them. But by the time I'd done everything, I started listening and I found out it's better that same way with Instant Karma and other things, you me remix it right away that night. I'd known that before, but never followed through. So you're bang on. It was a rough mix and, oh, okay. and yeah. he just went yeah stick it on there sounds great uh, have, have you ever done that or do you are you a little more laborious with your mixing well i haven't done you know that kind of uh yeah instant uh instant mixing uh and using it but there has been cases where there was a, a rough mix or like a first mix and you think you're gonna you know the engineer is gonna be doing more mixes but uh, there has been a few cases where that first mix is so great and then you're kind of chasing it. You know, you're trying to get like a better mix and then you realize, oh, the original mix is perfect, <laughs> great. You know? So that's happened, but I haven't quite done anything like Instant Karma. But I, I'm also, um, I'm not a perfectionist. And that's another thing that I've, uh, I don't have like a ton of patience. So that's like another <laughs> Lennon-ish thing about me. So uh, definitely there's been uh, uh, cases where 
you know, we could have just mixed something to death. And I was just like early on, oh, that sounds great. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so the opening track really, really could, couldn't be much more confessional, Mother, and then Hold On uh, lightens up a little bit. On your newest record I want to talk about here for a second, Time Out for Tomorrow. Um, I get a, a whiff of confessional songwriting for sure. Uh, but yet it's also, it's kind of a, a to me, a, it's a bunch of vignettes tied together and I know it's it's about a ghost town in the province of Ontario, Canada. Tell me about this. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. Tell me about the record. Well, it's like what we talked about earlier. There's always uh, elements in each song, you know, like the opening song, Canvas of Gold. Um, I mean, that's really talking about uh, the struggle of, of uh, you know, it's, it's great being a troubadour, a traveling troubadour, and I love writing songs. I mean, it really feels like this is what I'm here to do and what I've always done. Yeah. So there's some of that virtual Lake. I, I wrote about, uh, I read about it in a book by Ron Brown, who's, who lives in Toronto. I've never met him, but he writes all these books about uh, ghost towns of Ontario and the back roads, you know, all these interesting things. And that song almost like with Lennon and, and uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite from Pepper you know, it's like the song was there, you know, like uh, it, it just hadn't been, you know, uh, put into, uh, uh, you know, lyrics hadn't been sung. So I thought, you know, Virtual Lake, uh, you know, I made sure that nobody had written it yet. And, and, and then I, uh, I got it down, you know, but yeah, there's always elements that in here is another song on the record that is probably, you know, there's a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot of, but there's some Lennon influence there and, and especially with the sound of the recording. And I play piano on that and Kyle Sullivan, who plays drums with me, like he, you know, he, he quite has like a good uh, Ringo thing going on it. Um, in the case of like Plastic Ono Band, we're just laying it down and really tasteful fills, you know, like nothing overblown. Um, Ringo is so great at that. Like just the, yeah. I mean, his fills are, that. yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I can't get into conversations with, you know, like, oh, he's overrated or he's, you know, wasn't a good drummer. I'm just not interested because, you know, I'm not a technical musician. Uh, you know, I, I learn by ear and feel and feel, you know, that's that's where I'm at. You know, like if something feels and sounds good, then it's, you know, it's 100 percent right to me. And, and Ringo is just one of the best. I mean, you know, that's why Lennon trusted him with, with Plastic Ono Band. He, he needed somebody there that was going to, uh, you know, support what he was doing uh, musically. And, and he did a great job. I love Ringo's mm -hmm. drumming on the album. So, like, some of his best drumming, I think. Well, he does. Uh, let's move on to cut three, side one. And he does some pretty good drumming here. It's called I Found Out. Uh, they started work on the track with a few recorded demos at the house in Bel Air. That's uh, that's uh, John and Yoko that they were renting when they were in L.A. during their primal scream therapy sessions. Uh, Lennon wanted a driving, dirty feel to the track. I think he got it. I told you before, stay away from my door. Don't give me that brother, 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 brother. The freaks on the phone won't leave me alone. So don't give me that brother, 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 brother. Mm -hmm. 
the sound of the guitar on it. You know, uh, for a long time, I didn't know what it was. I assumed it was his, uh, the electric that he'd been using for, you know, four years, I guess, at that point, uh, at the phone casino. I thought it was that just, like, overdriven through the amp. And then, I don't know how many years ago, I, I found out that it was this, uh, this national guitar, like almost like a, an old like resonator blues guitar that he really, he really got it so dirty sounding. And I love it. A little bit of vibrato on it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it just, it just shows, uh, I think Lennon said something about like, you know, he wasn't a great player, but you know, if you give him anything, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll make it howl. And he really makes the, the guitar howl on this and you really get, you know, it, it reflects the words and, and what Klaus and uh, Ringo are playing. You know, it suits all of that. Uh, the quote is uh, that you're referring to. This is from an interview John did in 1970. I found out, I think it's nice. It drives along. I don't know. Ask Eric Clapton. He thinks I can play. Uh, a lot of you people want the technical thing, and then you think, oh, well, that's like wanting technical films. Most critics of rock and roll and guitarists are in the stage of the 50s where they wanted a technically perfect film finished for them, and then they would feel happy. I'm a cinema verte guitarist musician. You have to break down your barriers to be able to hear what i'm playing so you and it is it's it's a he had the distortion turned right up i think it's a hell of a song and and ringo and klaus just drive it along oh yeah it's great the the lyrics are great um you know now that i found out i know i can cry you know it's but the way he sings it it's you know there's so much venom i mean there's no better singer than lennon i mean he's just my I mean, I love Dylan as well. You know, Dylan is a, a very underrated vocalist because, again, you get, you totally get what he's singing, you know, and, and Lennon is like that too, you know, and even though he didn't think he had a good voice. But as Roger Daltrey said, you know, Roger Daltrey hated his own voice too. He's like, I don't think anybody likes their own voice except for maybe Rod Stewart. So <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's pretty much it. Like I, you know, I, I get uncomfortable when I hear, you know, myself sing, you know, but when it was just one of the best and, and I found out like, how do you know I get into that? In between takes on the session tape, you can hear Lennon making a reference to uh, Carl Wolf. Uh, seemingly the explanation that Ringo said years later uh, to Starr and, and Vorman, he wanted a performance that was pitched somewhere between Carl Perkins and Howling Wolf. So that's Carl Wolf. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I never heard that. That's great. And uh, let me see. The, one other note. Uh, the word uh, cock was censured on the printed lyrics. Uh, there were a couple of uh, naughty words that the EMI censors refused to print uh, on the jacket. Yeah. Yeah, those teeny boppers must have been horrified. <laughs> what happened? What happened to their their John Lennon of uh, you know making the witty comments and hard <laughs> days night and all that stuff, right? Um, so all of Lennon's solo studio works up until '75's Rock and Roll were credited as being with some version of the Plastic Ono Band, and he called it like the Plastic Ono Nuclear Band, the Plastic UFO Ono Band, Plastic Ono <laughs> Elephants Memory Band, and on this album, the Plastic Ono Band is Ringo and Klaus and, and John, uh, Phil Spector and Billy Preston make very brief appearances. The makeup of the band always changed, which brings me to you. 
You have a similar project with the Delphi's and the Bopfies, and I'm, I'm going to read a quote that's attributed to you. It's Jerry Legere's thing, but when I ask him what he would say the Delphi's are, all he would tell me is that I am the Delphi's, meaning the person you were talking to, just as you are the Delphi's. And because you are you, you understand. <laughs> so can you, is that your version of the Plastic Ono band, the Delphi's? Well, yeah, you know, especially with that press release uh, for the Delphi's when, when that first record came out, I was thinking of, uh, you know, how John and, um, how John and Yoko really uh, uh, utilized the media and, and um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of Plastic Ono Band influence with how I was presenting it of like, you are, you are the Plastic Ono Band, you know, I wanted to, to, to use that for the Delphi's, you are the Delphi's, get like, you know, shirts made or something like that. And actually when the, the record came out uh, on the Facebook page, I, I, uh, I, I put that, you know, all the, the people that played on the album, there was like 13 because it was a, uh, uh, rotating cast of of, uh, of players. Um, I put that any you can be in the Delphi's. Just send a message, you know. So I actually got a few messages from people saying, "Hey, I play this or I play that," and so I'd say, "Well, come out to a show," you know. And early on, we'd have anybody up, you know. Some I think we did a release show that had like thirty people on stage. Wow, you know, like fifteen guitarists. It was just a you talk about, you know, Phil Spector wall sound. You know, this was just like sound. Like you didn't even know what was going on. It was quite fun. But of course, I had to scale that down after a while because, it, you know, to. That is good. Hey, I'm going to I'll put some uh, links up on uh, the Facebook group page. And also I'll tweet out some links to the Delphi's work if you want to check it out. Um, so let's move on to the next cut on side one. And. You come out of, you know, I found out, pretty raw, uh, but grinding, dirty track as Lennon wanted. And you get to this one, which is raw in a different way. Working class hero. What say you about this one? As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. I, I mean, yeah, this is one of the, the best John Lennon songs ever. And, and uh, especially as I was getting older and getting into junior high and high school, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, I never, uh, I didn't actually uh, pick up a spray can, but like, a, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to, in, in big letters, spray paint the high school with that, you know, they hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool. You know, because you couldn't, you know, a lot of people still deal with that. You couldn't be, you know, completely unique. You couldn't be, or you'd be, you know, a rebel and nobody likes a rebel, you know. And, and uh, But I don't really think of it as being rebellious. It's just being like human and, and, and like finding your way. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song, you know, uh, even though it's very intense. But like lyrically, it's it's one of his best songs, I think. I think a lot of people uh, 
miss the irony of it. Um, you know, I, I think it it was what my opinion. It was it was misunderstood because working class hero was ironic because Lenin was brought up in a very comfortably middle yeah. class house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you, you have been the best. He had actually the best. Like, yeah, compared to the rest of the Beatles, you know. Yeah, and and that, I think especially the closing line: "If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me." Uh, you know, the English people can have a very ironic sense of humor, and and I think um, rather than you know self-aggrandizement, uh, that that he's you know he's in the midst at that time of a, a period of of self-doubt and insecurity, and he the last thing he would have done at that time he he did it a few years later was put himself forward as a leader like i think there's some irony there do you get that yeah you know i never actually thought about that it's a really good point um and also like lennon being very insecure i mean i you know those insecurities are hard to fight with and and he became so open about it you know like he really everything we know about lennon like good and bad it's because he told us, you know, mm-hmm. we, we know all, we know his skeletons in the closet because he told us, you know, he's, he became very confessional. And I guess that was part of the, the therapy. And, and uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, what you're saying, it, it, it makes sense. It's just like with the Imagine song, you know, he gets slammed a lot, you know, after death with, you know, oh, Imagine, no possessions and stuff like that. Cause he's, he's putting it out there for all of us to, to really reflect and listen to. And, and, you know, I mean, we know that he was imperfect. That's for sure. Well, I mean, that's another topic we could get off on, but it, it drives me up the wall when people, Oh yeah, man, imagine no possession, some rock and roll millionaire. Well, dude, if you want to go back and, and be critical of every artist who portrayed poverty and what they're, do you go back to Lowry's paintings of the middle class in Northern England and say, wow, Lowry was an artist. What did he know about? I mean, no, you didn't Uh, like not every, you don't have to be poor to write about poor struggling people it's it's i don't yeah. think and and i, I that yeah. drives me up the wall when people don't get that it's, yeah exactly yeah. you know i wrote about a ghost town but i didn't grow up in one yeah 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 sorry jerry that's my rant for the day there's yeah a, yeah, yeah. No, totally, you know, I, um i mean that's the, it's the poetic license and all that stuff you get into all that well, interesting, the the sort of mythology around this record is it's a very raw, lo-fi record, which which I suppose it is in some ways. But the, it's not like care wasn't taken. Uh, he took more than 100 attempts at this song. It was recorded at EMI Studios because he wanted oh, to I get it. Yeah, now a lot of them broke down. They weren't complete takes. But, mm, yeah. but, but he wanted to get... A perfect version, and uh, and he finally did a, f- a funny little technical thing, came up with a satisfactory version finally, and then found later that he'd missed out the verse beginning when they've tortured and scared you for twenty odd years. Uh, so that verse was recorded during a different session. So they edited it in afterwards. It's it's a terrible edit if you listen for it. Yeah, you can hear it right away. Yeah, a working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be 
When they've tortured and scared you for 20 odd years Yeah, um, it, you know but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to get it on there. That was an important line. The strength line. of it, 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 you know, it works because of the strength of, of the song and, and his uh, presence. You know, he had a huge presence uh, on on record and off record. You know, he, he really did. Uh, so, so, Jerry, this could not be a more stripped back track. And that brings me to your pandemic record, Songs from the Apartment. Very stripped back. Uh, tell me about that record. Was it? Was it? It's just you. Was it? Did you mix it? Was it mixed at all, or did you just record it and put it out? Yeah, it was just recorded into a, a single mic, and and essentially what they were, uh, uh, they were demos, you know, of, of songs I've written the last few years. Um, um, and and nobody would have. I didn't think anybody would hear any of those songs except for me. Or, or Mike Timmons, uh, who's produced the last few records. Uh, he's from the Cowboy Junkies, and I, I record. Uh, I'm signed to their label, Laden Recordings. Uh, so besides him, I didn't think anybody would hear these songs, you know. And uh, I'm always writing. So if they're, you know, we're about to make a new record, I'll have like 40 songs that I'll send to Mike, and then those will be narrowed down to, you know, 25, 20, we'll go into the studio with, you know, 15 and 10 or 12 are released. So there's always great songs that, you know, are, are just, you know, left to the side that because they didn't fit the story of the record or, or whatnot. So uh, when the, when lockdown began, uh, I started thinking about, you know, putting something out and, and I had, all these songs, some of that, that I really loved, I didn't think, because some of them were a few years old, I didn't think I would ever return to, because I'm constantly writing new songs, and you get really excited about the current stuff you're working on. So it just felt like a good time, you know, we were all kind of, uh, you know, in shock, really, about what was going on, and like, shocked to the system, and to our life, and um, I just put it out there for, you know, fans and friends I thought would, would get a kick out of it. Because when I revisited it, I, I was also really struck by how intimate and raw and how relaxed I sounded, you know. So will we see any of those? You mentioned they were demos initially. Will we see any of those on a future uh, Jerry Legere album or is that, that so. it? They're done. You don't, you're done with them. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, uh, I'm I'm very like that when when I put out albums. You know, like uh, I remember a couple of years ago, Mike saying, you know, there's some great songs from the earlier records. You know, like it would be cool to, to you know re-record a few, kind of like updated. And I'm like, ah, no, yeah. and you know that's because that's another Lennon connection. That like the thing I love the most about Lennon's soul records, for better or worse, is that they're a document of his life. They all have their story, you know, like sometime in New York city is the radical Lennon. Yeah. You know, Alton bridges is the lost weekend, you know, all this stuff, right. They always have a, a story behind them. And, and that's how I look at my records too. They're, they're real documents. So songs from the apartment is, is a document, even though some of them were older songs, it's a real document of, of, of the, the time that we were all in, you know, and we're still in, unfortunately, but, you know, hopefully soon we'll be out of. I, I really liked it. I, I like the, uh, I like this, the, the uh, it's, to me, it's a record 
you want to listen to by yourself, glass of wine, contemplative. That's, that's the sound to me. So last cut on side one, you come out of a, a pretty intense listen with Working Class Hero, stripped back, pretty bare. Last cut side one, isolation. And uh, it like Hold On, it was a rough mix that Lennon had done to take home and listen to, but ended up just leaving it as it was. People say we got it made. Don't they know we're so afraid? Isolation. I love this track. What about you? We're afraid to be yeah, it's a, a beautiful song, and I love his uh, piano playing. You know, he uh, he downplays his piano playing. I guess you know I sort of do too. You know, uh, because I I learned how to play piano through Lennon. You know. Like his type of playing, just kind of like block chords on the piano. Um, that was my, uh, uh, you know, he was my teacher when I started fiddling around on on the piano. Like him and Neil Young, I guess. You know, Neil Young does some cool things, but but Lennon was very simplistic. But he has his own style, you know, and you really hear uh, uh, his unique playing on on this song. Um, I really, yeah, it's, it's great, you know, and of course him and it's about him and Yoko feeling, you know, isolated, even though, you know, people wouldn't think that they would be because they were so public and, you know, having the bed in, having like their whole naked and at for all to see. And, and, but really, you know, everybody goes through the same feelings, you know, every human being, uh, no matter, you know, uh, what it looks like on the outside, you know, uh, of course they were feeling afraid, you know, at that time. He'd been influenced the middle section, the, I don't expect you to understand that bit. Uh, it's inspired by, uh, Barrett Strong, a Motown artist, a song called, Oh, I Apologize, which was the B-side to Money, which Lennon, one of his favorite tracks. If you listen to the two, you can really hear that's his vocals are amazing in that bridge too you know he double tracked his vocals uh, which is another thing that I, I i hadn't done since my first album when i was 19 double tracking and i did on time out for tomorrow when you do the double track do you do it the way lennon did it back then which was i think they called it adt automatic double tracking where you're singing it once there's a slight delay and it's it's a slapback vocal i think you call it or do you go on and double yourself you know after you've recorded the initial vocal yeah i did it like the early beatles records where I, i i recorded the second vocal afterwards um you know the adt is is cool and of course it was basically invented because of Lennon being like, he didn't have the pay, he didn't want to have to do it anymore, you know, double going through it. Although in isolation, when he does the vocals, you can hear that it's two different uh, vocal tracks. Cause the way he, the way he sounds on the tail end, you can kind of hear how it doesn't quite, um, uh, the way he sings, it doesn't quite match. Uh, but yeah, the, the ADT, we did try, but it, it sounded too much like Revolver to me or something. You know? it, it made it sound too like mid-late 60s. So I, I, I went old school on it, older school on it. So let's flip it over and side number two. 
And there's, there's quite a story behind this one, so I'll, I'll get you to talk about the song first. The song is called Remember, and it was recorded on John's 30th birthday, October 9th, 1969. And it's based on a piano riff that he first used, uh, you can hear it on some bootlegs, on an extended coda that was on a version of George Harrison's Something during the Abbey Road session. So he'd had that sort of piano sequence around, turned it into this song. Remember When you were young I love the way he sings it too, you know, he, uh, by the late sixties, he started singing in this kind of like for certain songs, he, he'd have like a more, uh, 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 a lower end, uh, bluesier vocal for certain, certain tunes. And, and, uh, the way he sings on remember, it's the same thing. And it's kind of cool that, uh, when he goes into the, the don't feel sorry part, it's this real like lift. It's like this real beautiful lift because you're kind of like in this kind of dirge. Like it's a bit like you know deep, you know, down in the dirt and stuff like that. And then it, it opens up, and again he has the double track vocals, and it gets a little brighter, almost like uh, probably the closest to anything Beatles sounding uh, on this album. You know, he, he he gets really into something more melodic and. Uh, yeah, it, yeah it, I love song. Well, it, it's it's interesting because again, you know, it's a heavy album, or certainly that's the well-earned reputation of it. But yet, there are there are some funny moments on it. One is, is in in Hold On, where he channels. He's I think Lennon goes Cookie. You know, he sees oh, cha- yeah. he's channeling just you know a, a non sequitur uh, from of the Cookie Monster from Sesame Street. And then in this one, uh, he finishes up with a bit of a joke. It finishes you know Remember the Remember the fifth of November. Fifth of November in the UK is Guy Fox Day, so it's it's a fireworks day where they they light off fireworks. Uh, it commemorates Guy Fox who attempted to blow up the British Parliament. So it's a fireworks night, uh, and it's a children's rhyme in the UK. You know, remember. Remember the fifth of November, and then he says that, and then there's boom, the great big explosion, which yeah. is the fireworks. So it, it's completely a, a bit of a joke and a and a light moment. Um, and the quote from him is just says just that. I was just ad libbing and goofing about, and then I cut it there, and it just exploded because it was a good joke. Uh, did you get that out of it the first time you heard it, or were you, like many North Americans, puzzled? What's with the fifth of November and the explosion? I thought it sounded incredibly intense. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I, I thought it was cool. I was like, "Yeah, this is great," you know. Like, end the song with this explosion, you know. And then later on, yeah, I read about uh, that it was just like an ad lib that uh, you know, and it was a bit of a joke. But uh, but yeah, it's. That, it, again, it shows the, uh, you know, the, the personality of Lennon, you know, like, and he was like that in interviews as well, where he would be very intense talking about the most intense things. And then he'd make some silly joke, you know, and I, I, th- I think that made him in, enduring in a way, you know, where like McCartney was very, you know, in interviews, it's like, well, you got to be really nice to everyone. And, 
you know, he didn't want to, and understandably, he didn't want to talk about anything super personal. Um, you know, and he felt like you got to be nice to these people because they're going to be writing about you. And Lennon was just very, you know, very honest and, and he could be, uh, uh, you know, a bit angry or a bit rude or a bit, you know, this, that, and the other. But then he'd make this joke and it would lighten everything up, you know? And I, I think he's like that in some of these songs, you know? I think maybe when he felt almost uncomfortable with, like, you know, it, it helped him out a lot, too. Well, it, on the, the John Lennon anthology box set, uh, there's a, a version of this where Lennon is he's, he's laughing, laughing with the band and joking around, and the track's kind of breaking down. Uh, there's a longer version, the same thing, which you can get on bootleg, where they're clowning around and he changes the lyrics. Now, the funny thing about that, here's a weird story. So he sounds on the bootlegs and even on the track, sounds like he's in pretty good form, pretty good spirits, having a good day. Yeah, sounds like he's pretty happy, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's his you know, birthday. There's all their stuff going on, yeah. But, but do you want to know what happened earlier that day? Earlier that day, he invited his father, Alf, to come to his estranged father to come and have lunch with him at Titner's Park in, in Ascot. And that was the last time the pair would meet. Alf Lennon brought along his young wife uh, and their 18-month-old son. And then Lennon, tapping into his primal scream therapy vibe, which encouraged him to relive his childhood in a bid to uncover sources of pain, launched into a tirade against his father. And apparently it got really ugly. Uh, He was threatening him, blaming him for all that had happened to him in in his childhood a quote from alfred lennon uh this is a quote he says there was no doubt whatsoever in my mind that he met every word he spoke his countenance was so frightful to behold as he explained in detail how i would be carried out to sea and dumped 2050 or perhaps he would prefer 100 fathoms deep the whole loathsome tirade was uttered with malignant glee as though he were actually participating in the terrible deed. That's a quote from a, a letter that Alfred Lennon left with his solicitor in case anything happened to him. Mm. So he had a really intense day and that moment and then just went in and did kind of a track where it sounded like he was having a good time. Well, again, uh, you know, it probably goes back to, uh, you know, music being uh, a form of therapy and escape as well, you know, even though he's singing about something intense he's also playing with you know two really good friends of his and you know his his wife who he loves is there you know he 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 went from you know uh uh, letting out uh uh you know what was on his mind and and uh with his father he went from that you know unleashing all that to being surrounded by you know uh uh the sense of comfort with with friends and music and and also probably a sense of accomplishment of, of getting you know these tracks down and a song like that down um you know there's a, a courageous thing you know he, he was probably feeling pretty good about himself being able to do that so on that note a weird one uh from where he was expressing some hate towards his estranged father we go to the next track called love Love is real Real is love Love is 
a really beautiful song. I love Phil Spector's piano playing on it. I, I, I feel like besides mixing it, that's probably like his only... <laughs> yeah, like the only thing he did on the record, actually. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's listed as a producer on the album, but he was only present for a handful of sessions. And uh, Ringo, in an interview on, uh, it was in cl- a classic albums interview, and Ringo said, "I have no recollection of Phil being around at all, um, so other than he was there to help with the final mixes, but he, he didn't produce per se. Um, just played a simple acoustic guitar part." And then he asked Spectre to add that that piano part, which goes on. Now, speaking of producers, uh, you've worked with Michael Timmons of Cowboy Junkies, your last few solo records, uh, last year's Time Out for Tomorrow, 2017's Nonsense and Heartache, great record, I love that one, uh, and 2014's Early Riser. What has he changed about your sound from some of the previous efforts like uh, Traveling Gray or some of the records you did, you did with Tim uh, Bovacanti at the controls? Uh, I, like I thought the one that you did with Tim, The Good Old Days Are Back in Drag, had a real Lennon-sounding couple of tracks on there for sure. Uh, you Got Away From Me with Bovacani playing the role of George with the slide guitar is, is an example there. So long yeah. question, but so what What does Michael bring that Tim didn't or are they the same? What's the story there? Well, I think with uh, with Mike, he, he definitely brought um, a different atmosphere to, uh, to the recordings. Um, because just like with the other records I made um, with Tim and other people, you know, he uh, he just left us to, to do what we do. It was all about capturing what we do best, you know, and keeping us on track, you know. And those are always the producers I love the most that aren't trying to change. He wasn't trying to make a Cowboy Junkies record, you know. It was about making, you know, the, the, the best Jerry Legier record um, – for those set of songs at that time, you know, and capturing the the best performances. The other thing is that um, unlike the the previous albums, uh, uh, Mike would spend a long time mixing uh, each song himself, you know, and 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 he just has a different ear with with uh, uh, with mixing different layers of songs and, and textures and stuff like that. Um, and also, as I grew as an artist, I wanted to you know, try different things or, you know, different approaches. And, and Mike was totally on board with that. Um, with, with Tim, uh, with that particular album, Good Old Days Are Back and Drag, it was very, you know, instant. I, I like, it was a, just a fun project where I didn't even, I didn't know if it was going to come out, you know, it's probably the closest thing to like the Delphi's that we were talking about earlier, you know, where I was going to put it out if it turned out, cool and if it didn't it was just like a fun thing that tim kyle and i played you know and uh but yeah mike is great to work with tim is great to work with too you know uh, tim's an amazing musician and and he can like adapt to to anything and and pretty well play anything sing anything you know it's uh lennon's uh word on love he says uh, love i wrote in a spirit of love in all that shit, I wrote in a spirit of love. It's for Yoko. It has all that connotation for me. It's a beautiful melody, and I'm not even known for writing melody. He said that in a 1970 interview. Yeah, so, and he's such a beautiful, you know, he writes beautiful melodies, you know. Like, uh, McCartney gets the credit for that a lot. 
Uh, but, you know, Lennon also wrote, yeah, Love, he wrote Julia, he wrote uh, Look at Me, which is, you know, we'll get to on this record. Um, he wrote so many beautiful melodies. And and it also shows his brilliance as a songwriter where, like, Love has some of the most simple lyrics, but it's absolutely beautiful. Like, I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to, even though it's so simple, you know, nobody thought to arrange it that way and and you know everyone can relate to it and it's beautiful where like you know i love mccartney too but like the simplest mccartney lyrics you know it's uh it's a different story (laughs) but you know but yeah love is just it's one of the best love songs because it's universal uh the lyrics aren't cheesy even though uh, uh, yeah, the content and uh, and how simple the words are. It's it's so gentle. It's a it's a lovely song. Um, uh, and beautiful vocal performance. Um, yeah, it's very tender. And, and, and so we go from that pretty tender song. The sequencing on this record is interesting. Uh, the tender song. We go to track three on side two, which is well, 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 and that's uh, that takes me back to i found out a little bit you just you get you get these three guys yeah locked in and it just drives it along the rhythm section uh ringo and close have that uh they're more uh bluesy rock songs they're very uh uh dirty sounding like the tone that Lennon gets out of his guitar uh yeah love it and uh Ringo's drumming on well 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 is great uh and Klaus Vorman is one of the most underrated bass players you know barely anybody talks about him and and uh I yeah I love his playing um, and on this, especially on this uh, song, you know, like near the end, uh, they almost break down. It gets very loose, you know, like Klaus is kind of finding different notes. It, it never completely falls apart. But I just love that that Lennon kept that, you know, kept that in. Well, well, well. I guess it falls apart at the very end, you know, when he can't, he can't play anymore. He's like laughing and, you know, I I don't know if it was like the guitar. I know that you complain sometimes that like his fingers were hurting from, you know, playing for so long, but... It's it's, uh, Ringo claimed in a 73 interview, 1973, Lennon had played Lee Dorsey's 1969 single, Everything I Do Gonna Be Funky, from now on. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, I love that song, too. Yeah, he he said he played it, uh, Ringo's quote, he played it a hundred times to get the spirit he wanted. Lennon has a couple of guitar parts, raw, distorted, and then the backing by Starr and Klaus uh, Dents, and the... He gets into the screaming, and John says, Listen to Twist and Shout. I couldn't sing the damn thing. I was just screaming. Listen to A Wop Bop, A Lou Wop, A Bop Bop, Bam Boom. Don't get the therapy confused with the music. Uh, so it wasn't primal scream therapy. It was just him giving a hell of a vocal performance. 
I love it. And he's, yeah, his screaming at the end of Well, Well, Well is, uh, is amazing too, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, on your 2017 album, Nonsense and Heartache, speaking of screaming, <laughs> to me, <laughs> you have the a, a same kind of grungy feel. I think it's my favorite track in the album. She's the best writer you've never heard of. Uh, and there's a, a bit of a raw vocal in that, and it's, I just love the feel of the track. Was that the kind of vibe that you were after? Tell me about that. Yeah, that, exactly. And, and this song in particular, Well, Well, Well. Uh, yeah, when we... Uh, I, I wrote that song. Um, I didn't really know uh, what to do with it. It was just kind of like put aside. And, and uh, with Nonsense and Heartache, we released it as a double album, but it was essentially two different albums packaged into one where Heartache was this folk roots record and uh, Nonsense was like a real gritty rock and roll bluesy record. You know, I was running out of songs and I was like, well, I have this, you know, I have this song. I like the words. I don't know if there's anything to it. And once I started playing it and I, I guess I was kind of playing it in that, that Lennon type way on guitar and singing it and uh, Kyle Sullivan on drums just started going into this beat that is, he wasn't really thinking about it, but it's exactly what Ringo would have done if Lennon started playing this song during the Plastic Ono Band sessions. And uh, I, I, yeah, it's the closest that I've come to to wearing Lennon's influence on my sleeve, you know, uh, with with that approach vocally. Um, I mean, I've been very influenced by Lennon vocally and, and uh, my guitar playing, and, but I don't get compared to him a lot, uh, which I guess is kind of nice because I, you know, it's a it's a mixture of different influences, you know, that makes makes up what what you do. That, that, and, uh, that, that's a that's a big mantle to have to wear if somebody wants to make a direct comparison. I'm not sure that you'd want that, would you? Oh, I, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I it's cool when it sneaks into some uh, uh, reviews or whatever where it's like, oh, that's cool that they picked up on that. But yeah, it's kind of nice, you know. Uh, yeah, the Beatles being so huge, you know, and I certainly wouldn't, you know, just come out and I wouldn't compare myself to to Lennon, but he definitely has been an, uh, an influence and, and yeah, that song, uh, it, it definitely shows the, the influence that this album has had on me. Uh, I'm going to put a link up to that, uh, to the album Nonsense and Heartache, which is a, a fun record, but I love the track. She's the best writer you've never heard of. So I'll put a link up there so you can check that out. Uh, next track on the album as we work our way through side two, Look at Me. And this is one that, that goes back to 1968 and the trove of songs that Lennon and the other Beatles wrote while they were in India studying transcendental meditation. And when when I tell you that, can you hear that finger picking style that, that from the, you know, from songs like yeah. uh, Dear Julia. Prudence, Julia? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you hear that? Look at me. Who am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? Look at me. It's a, it's a really beautiful song. I'm glad that he uh, he played it that way too, because I heard the like an earlier version where he's just strumming it more, and it kind of has like a Oyoko sort of sound to it, which I think he wrote around that time. I think he wrote a few years before it, it made it on Imagine, 
Um, but yeah, I really like uh, that, that finger style and his double track vocals again, like really um, bring a softness to the recording. And again, like love, it has very uh, simple lyrics, but there's uh, there's a depth to it, you know. It, well, here's an interesting thing. Um, like for a record, and I've mentioned this a few times, known for being very in-your-face kind of raw, you can go back and look at some really gentle songs, Hold On, Isolation, yeah. Love, and this one. Do you think it would have been worth... You did this with your album, uh, uh, with the nonsense and heartache, you you kind of sequenced the songs. You had a nonsense record; it's a double record on vinyl, and then you had the the heartache record. Do you think he could have done a side one, gentle side two, more raw? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear it that way and how it would uh, uh, change the record. You know, of course, uh, uh, Dylan did uh, bring it all back home with electric side one acoustic side two and then uh neil young uh flipped it around with uh, rust never sleeps did acoustic and then you know electric on the other side so i feel like it would have had uh more similar to rust never sleeps because it gets so heavy on the next side but then the first side is is very you know lighter and stuff like that it'd be interesting to hear it in that sequence but it, it's kind of cool with, with us talking about it now and going from track to track and and now like really i never really thought about how it goes from this intensity and then brings you back down it, it kind of works because of the intensity of the words and, and music that you get like a bit of relief every other song you know you get kind of okay you know if it was all just you know mother i found out remember well 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 true like if you you know, it'd be really intense, you know? Well, well, where so where would you put? We come to the second last song on uh, on the album, and it would be interesting where this one would slot in. Whether it would be on the the gentle, more acoustic side, if you will, or the intense side. Uh, God, the penultimate song in the record, yeah. uh, clearly influenced. He came up with the line. Uh, here's a quote from Doctor Arthur Janov. Uh, he rented a house in Bel Air, which was a very ritzy area, and we talked about things. He said, what about God? And I would go on and on about how people who have deep pain generally tend to believe in God with a fervency. And he said, oh, you mean God is a concept by which we measure our pain? Just bang. That mm. There was the line, and that turns out to be the, the cornerstone of the song. It's an incredible track. To me, it's the centerpiece track of the album. God is a concept By which we measure Our pain I'll say it again Just like with, uh, uh, I think it was Working Class Hero we were talking about, it, it uh, you know, it gets attacked, you know, because he's saying, I don't believe in, you know, all these things, right? 
but but it it's just a bit uh, overanalyzed, I think, because you know he he did respond saying, you know, like I I am a religious guy, you know, and and just the the way the song goes, I mean, it's essentially a gospel song, you know, it has that you know the when he says the by which we measure, say it again, and well, it has this kind of like gospel feel to it, and of course Billy Preston plays really nice gospel piano on it. You know, he's saying all these things that he doesn't believe in because, yeah, it, it gets to the believing in, in himself, you know, instead of like all these, you know, these are just, uh, uh, and when he says like, I don't believe in Zimmerman instead of Dylan because, you know, Bob Dylan is just this like name. It's just this uh, uh, idea. It's also a concept. God is the concept. Elvis was a concept. There was Elvis, the real guy. And then there was the conception of him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a really uh, powerful song and it couldn't be anywhere else uh, in the track order. You know, it has to be exactly where it is, you know? And, and, and uh, so it shows the power of, of uh, the, the track order in, in that way. Lennon says, uh, I had the idea, God is the concept by which we measure our pain. So when you have a phrase like that, you just sit down and sing the first tune that comes into your head. And the tune is very simple. Uh, God is the concept, bump, 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 because I like that kind of music. And then I just rolled into it. Uh, And then as to the ending, he says... uh, I was going down like a Christmas card list. Where do I end? Churchill and who have I missed out? It got like that and I thought I had to stop. I was going to leave a gap and say, just fill it in on your own for whoever you don't believe in. It just got out of hand. But Beatles was the final thing because it's like I no longer believe in myth and the Beatles is another myth. I don't believe in it. The dream's over. I'm not just talking about the Beatles is over. I'm talking about the generation thing. The dream's over, and I have personally got to get down to so-called reality. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. remember like for me being a huge Beatles fan Jerry the first time I heard it the last three when he goes through Elvis don't believe in Elvis don't believe in Zimmerman don't believe in Beatles and that just absolutely shocked me the first time I heard it. do you remember the first time you heard the track I, I don't, you know, because it, it was uh, this music was just around me all the time, and and like in that Imagine documentary from the eighties, like it, it, it's one of the parts in that. But it it, it still it kind of gives you shivers in a way, because you know he's right. The Beatles were made into this like myth, this like huge concept, even though it's like four guys playing rock and roll. But you know, uh, of course. I'm, I must be sucked into it too, because when he says that, it's like, whoa, okay. You know, it, it, it must have, I can't imagine in 1970 when people heard that, you know, but it shows you just how uh, uh, huge the Beatles were for the generation, you know, just like when Lennon passed away too. It, it just like huge shock that he would say this about the Beatles, you know, I and mean, then 
probably why they hated him even more for a while, you know, until he died. Well, it's interesting because you had McCartney who sort of officially, I guess, announced the end of the Beatles with the press release that came out with his McCartney album. Yeah. Uh, but then you have Lennon, like he just sounds, he almost spits it out. He just sounds so vitriolic. Don't with, I don't believe in Beatles. Uh, and yeah, as, a, as I heard this years after the record had come out, I, I, I was nine years old in 1970, so I didn't get it then. Uh, but, yeah. but I remember hearing it and just going, holy jeez. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I think he had like resentment, you know, and a, a, a not to the degree that George did, but I think he had resentment about, you know, like he was the leader of the Beatles in the beginning, and McCartney kind of took that over as as uh, you know Lennon was losing a bit of interest and a bit lost in life. You know, it's it's like in a similar way with the Stones, where like in the seventies when Keith was really heavy into the drugs, like Mick kind of started guiding the stones and, and then Keith tried to gain back a bit of control by the time he, he got clean in the late seventies or cleaner anyways. Um, I think like Lennon had a, a, a more resentment towards uh, uh, McCartney and, and what the Beatles, you know, represented in his life where he just wanted to be John Lennon. You know, he didn't want to be Beatle John, you know, he wanted to, to, to be himself and that's really what the whole record is about and what the song is about of like you know I've arrived I'm John Lennon you know like it or not and then it ends with the bookend uh, the, the album starts with Mother and then it ends with My Mummy's Dead which is the final track a very lo-fi uh, just vocals and an electric guitar made at a the house that they rented in Bel Air and he and he tacked it on to the end uh, and just strange way to win a record yeah and it's you know it's like a nursery rhyme melody uh, you know it, 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 we all know it as, as a kid in, in some form and the saddest words you know it's the saddest song on the album and it's set to this you know, a happy sounding nursery rhyme and it's done so raw, lo-fi on a, a, a tape recorder. You know, for somebody that was a singles guy, like Lennon was all about singles from the beginning to the end, you know, like he wasn't an albums guy. Like he didn't really like any of the Beatles records, you know, uh, he was all about singles. And, and uh, but this is such a, a powerful conceptual record, you know, and, and uh, not conceptual like Pepper was, you know, it, it's, it's conceptual that it's, you know, John Lennon, like we really, you get a real sense of, of, uh, of who he is. It's great. So he began the album with the primal howls of anguish and then it ends, you know, howling about his, his mother and his parents. And then it ends with, uh, almost resigned acceptance of his mother's death with a, a nursery rhyme. Uh, it's three bl- to the tune of three blind mice in my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what, and then I would imagine I still do, whether it's on CD or vinyl, you just kind of sit there for a second and absorb it. It's uh, it's still all these years later. It's a tough listen. It's, it's not a, it's, it's not yeah. a gentle listen. This record, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's with the next album with Imagine. That's why he made it a little more, you know, 
put some nice strings on it and, and didn't go so heavy into, you know, the, the personal stuff and like screaming his head off. Cause it, yeah, it freaked a lot of people out. Like, you know, it wasn't a, a big selling record, you know, and, and uh, it's definitely his most acclaimed soul record, but it, it's one that is still pretty overlooked by the general public, like by Beatles fans and John Lennon fans and stuff. But um yeah, it's it's just there's no record like it, you know. There really isn't. All right, just want to talk a little bit about the cover art for the album. Uh, the cover shot was taken on the grounds of Lennon's new home at the time, the Tittenhurst Estate. It was taken by Dan Richter, an actor who hooked up with John and Yoko around the time of Abbey Road. He was a friend of Yoko's from New York City. He shot the cover on a good old consumer-grade Kodak Instamatic camera. On the cover of John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, Yoko is sitting, leaning back against a tree. Lennon is laying beside her in the grass with his head on her lap. And then the cover for Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band is pretty much the same shot, except with Lennon and Ono having swapped places. Both records have a childhood photo of either Lennon or Ono on the back cover. There is no track listing, and both had inner bags with the credits and the song lyrics on them. Now, Richter also worked as an assistant for the couple, and he was living with them at Tittenhurst for a time. He directed the photography for the Imagine film that accompanied that album. And he also scored heroin for John and Yoko in London. Uh, Remember, early in the Abbey Road sessions, Yoko was in a bed in the studio because she was recovering from a car accident that she and Lennon had been in. I'm going to quote here from an article by Keith Womack on Salon.com. Here's the quote. American actor Dan Richter, a friend of Ono's, recalled making his way inside EMI Studios to provide Ono with the Lennon's latest fix. It felt weird to be sitting on the bed talking to Yoko while the Beatles were working across the studio, said Richter. I couldn't help thinking that those guys were making rock and roll history while I was sitting on this bed in the middle of the Abbey Road studio handing Yoko a small white packet. End of quote. Also, uh, here's a good trivia question for you. Richter was cast as the leader of the tribe of ape men in the opening sequence of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. A little bit about the release of the record. Uh, It was released on December 11th, 1970, the same day as Yoko's matching album, so they both came out. Uh, Lennon's album was well-received by critics. The Village Voice's Robert Christgau named it the best record of 1970. The album reached number eight in the UK and number six on the Billboard charts. Other albums at that time, just some context as to what else was out there. All Things Must Pass by George Harrison. Jesus Christ Superstar, the soundtrack to the stage musical. Pearl by Janis Joplin. Uh, Abraxas by Santana. And Led Zeppelin Three was also out. And another big album was Andy Williams' Greatest Hits. 
As per chartmasters.org, total sales of the original record as of 2017, just under 3 million, 2.99 million physical copies, making it the third highest selling studio album that Lennon did. Double Fantasy is number one, 9.9 million, and Imagine number two at 8.2 million. The album has been streamed on Spotify 41 million times. Working Class Hero is the most streamed track followed by Mother. So, Jerry, I'll just read you this quote, and then I'd like to get your sort of final thoughts on on our conversation and anything you may take away from it. We've spent the last hour and a half plus talking about this record. The quote from Lennon, it's from a 1980 interview, uh, sort of looking at his body of work, and he says, I came up with Imagine, Love, and those Plastic Ono Band songs. They stand up to any songs that were written when I was a Beatle. Now, it may take you 20 or 30 years to appreciate that, but the fact is, these songs are as good as any fucking stuff that was ever done. And he said that in 1980 in an interview with David Sheff. I've, I, yeah, I've felt that way for a long time, that like I, I would put Classic Ono Band up with Rubber Soul, Revolver, The White Album, you know, like I, it's... It's, it's such a powerful statement. It's such a powerful record. And it really is who Lennon is. It has that rawness. It has that rock and roll. It has the confessional. It has the sweetness. It has the love. It, you know, it, it has really all those elements. You know, he, although he did experiment in the studio and, and uh, you know, stuff like I Am the Walrus and, uh Really, he liked just going into the studio, banging out, capturing, you know, the song and, and the feeling of the track. Uh, yeah, I would put it up against, you know, any Beatle record uh, or at least anything that he did in the Beatles. It's, uh, yeah, I totally I agree with him. <laughs> Jerry, it is it has been such a pleasure. Uh, I've I've seen you play yeah. before uh, around our, our our hood in East Toronto, and uh, it's it's I appreciate your music, and I really have appreciated your thoughts the last hour and a half. It's it's really been fun. Thank you so much for the yeah, generosity. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, I, I, I should add, uh, I didn't get to, but. Uh, uh, the Delphi's and I, yeah, we recorded actually with Mike Timmons. It was never released, but we did a medley of well, well, well. And uh, it would go into Lennon's version of well, baby, please don't go, which is a live version on sometime in New York city. And uh, it's quite fun. I, I do it a lot with the Delphi's when, when, you know, once upon a time when we were playing live and it would just go into this, you know, 20 minute jam, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, it'd be cool to, to release that one day, but yeah. Well, I'll, I'll look forward when life gets to normal to coming and hearing you play it with the Delphi's. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Jerry, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah, great talking with you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So I will remind you one more time that you can find out all things Jerry at his Webpage, jerrylegere.com. That is jerrylegere, one word, dot com. He's on Twitter, at jerrylegere. Instagram, jerrylegere music. And on Facebook, jerrylegere music. Uh, you can check out his pandemic album, 
a digital-only album called Songs from the Apartment. You can download that, find out information at his website, and also lots of information about his last sort of proper studio album, Time Out for Tomorrow, which we, of course, talked about during the show. It's a a great record, so it is all there at his website. Uh, You can visit my website, romicast.com, and find out information about me, about this show, and do sample the back catalog. We've got some great episodes up there. If you haven't heard them all, uh, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps from Blue Rodeo talk about Rubber Soul. We've got Dave Bedini of The Rio Statics talking a little bit about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Stephen Page, ex of the Bare Naked Ladies, talking about Tug of War by Paul McCartney. Tyler Stewart, Bare Naked Ladies drummer, talking about Revolver. There's some good episodes up there in the archive. Next time on the show, one of my favorite post-Beatles albums, Paul McCartney's 1971 stellar record, Ram. And I'll be welcoming Dave Merritt and Philip Shaw Bova of the band The Golden Seals. They'll be coming along to talk about that great McCartney record. Until then, that's it for this edition of The Walrus with Paul. I'm Paul Romanuk. Take care. Never get tired of being Beatles. I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Give me a Can we just have a little less guitar in here for oh, like, so oh, it's that John finally got just after that and we were both of the do what he wanted to do do what he wanted Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>